Good afternoon, everyone. Um, apologies for the delay uh, in starting. My name is Johanna Nesseth. I'm Senior Vice President with CSIS. I head up our work on global food security. Um, and I'm standing in today for Ambassador Bill Garvelink. Uh, Bill had hoped, very much hoped, to be here and to moderate this discussion because this is an issue he cares a great deal about and has watched closely. Um, he's had a family emergency, so he can't be here today. Um, but I'm pleased to have you here to talk about um, the FAO voluntary guidelines uh, for responsible governance of tenure of land, forestry, and fisheries. This is uh, something that a lot of people have spent a great deal of time working on. And we're pleased to welcome Andrew Hilton from the FAO. He's a senior land tenure officer. He's based in Rome. He's going to talk us through the guidelines uh, and share with us um, some of the detail about them and uh, talk a little bit about what it, what, what it will take to communicate the guidelines and focus on their implementation. Jonathan Schreier is joining us from the State Department. He's the Acting Special Representative for Global Food Security. Um, and I think one of the themes that I'd like to highlight today that these, uh, these two men will talk about is the enormous amount of time and effort that goes into negotiating these guidelines um, and, and why we spend time doing that, why it's important, why the U.S. is committed to this, why we've worked so closely with friends and allies to support these efforts um, and, and where we think that'll go because this is sub such an important but sometimes hidden part of what the government does um, that really develops global frameworks for activity and for, for norms that we think are so important. So with that, I would like to ask each, uh, Andrew and Jonathan, to just talk real briefly about their role in developing the guidelines and sort of where they're coming from, from both FAO and the State Department. And then after that, we're going to turn to Andrew to really go through a PowerPoint to walk through some of the key principles and um, areas of focus that will be of use for all of you. And then I think after that, we'll probably just open to audience questions. I apologize, there's like this big gap in the middle because I think our, our projector must need a lot of room to breathe or something. Um, but if, you know, we'll kind of maybe, can we bring any more chairs in front or we can't? Okay. It's verboten. All right, forget it. Um, we'll do them around the side. Okay, well, welcome, Andrew and Jonathan. Um, could I, who wants to start in terms of, why don't we start with you, Andrew? Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here and, you know, what you think we need to know as a primer. Uh, my name is Andrew Hilton. Um, I've been involved uh, in, with uh, the process of developing the FAO guidelines uh, from the inception. Um, I led on some of the regional cons consultations, uh, particularly with the private sector, um, at which I'll be able to tell you a little bit more about. My role now in FAO is to lead on the implementation of the guides, um, and one of the pillars of that implementation is actually spreading the word about what they are uh, to people like yourselves, uh, amongst many others. Um, and so my presentation will be about um, spreading the word uh, hopefully raising your awareness of uh, the voluntary guidelines and uh, hopefully the light bulbs will go on a little bit about uh, how you'll be able to uh, take these guidelines and use them in the work that you do. Thanks. So uh, I'm Jonathan Schreier uh, from the U.S. Department of State where I head up the global food security operation. And um, my involvement with the guidelines is uh, um, that uh, I'm, I'm involved with the U.S. I'm, I'm one of the, the lead representatives of the United States to the Committee on World Food Security, where the guidelines were developed and ultimately approved. Uh, and I'm also um, involved very much in uh, connecting the guidelines to our overall work on uh, promoting global food security. That is, addressing the challenge that faces us today of 
uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 870 million people worldwide who don't have enough to eat or don't have enough of the right foods to eat so that they're undernourished. Um, and uh, getting land tenure right is one of the keys to solving that problem, and so that's why I care about the, the achievement that the, the voluntary guidelines represent. And one of, um, one of the men who's on our, our Council on Global Development, Ambassador Mark Green from Tanzania, always says, you know, you could strike a free trade agreement with Tanzania tomorrow, but it wouldn't do any good because we don't have good land, uh, land recognition and land records and land tenure uh, approaches. So I think that just underscores the importance of these guidelines. I want to note this event is on the record. We're recording it, and we will post it on our website. So anything you say, uh, make sure that it's not too private or too confidential because it'll be public. Um, so with that, I'd like to start with you, Andrew, if you want to take us through um, through the details of the of the guidelines. Okay, thank you. So um, first, first thing to say is don't be put off by the very long title of, of this. What we're talking about here, um, and I will um, sort of refer to some of the aspects of this as we go along, but um, we're going to call them the voluntary guidelines, so that's the sort of simple way to refer to them. But the voluntary guidelines are about, um, about tenure of land and other natural resources and about the governance of, um, of that, that. Now let me, let's just go right to basics here and, and uh, talk about what we mean here. So tenure systems um, define and regulate how people, communities, and others gain access to natural resources, whether through formal law or informal arrangements. Now, this particular part of the definition is really important um, because we're going to look at um, formal tenure arrangements and informal tenure arrangements. Um, I'll come on to that as we, as we go through. The rules of uh, tenure determine who, who can use which resources for how long and under what circumstances. And they may be based on written policies, as I was saying, um, as well as unwritten customs and practices. And governance, in a nutshell, is, is uh, the way in which access and control over the natural resources is managed in a society. So basically, we're talking about the management um, of the tenure systems. So uh, the voluntary guidelines are a really exciting new development. It's the first time ever that we've had a, a, a global consensus on uh, tenure and on what we should be looking for in the governance of, of tenure. So it's a soft law, um, what we call a soft law instrument. That's why we have the word voluntary. Um, we cannot enforce this. But what it is is a global consensus of principles and best practice related to tenure and related to the governance of tenure of natural resources. And um, the process in which this, was, uh, this global consensus w was gained is absolutely crucial to um, where we go from here and, and the advantages that we, we are going to see in rolling this, this uh, implementation program out. It was negotiated uh, by government, by government uh, participation, but also uh, by a wide variety of other stakeholders, which I'll tell you about shortly. Uh, and the ultimate objective of this is to uh, use it as a, a reference for improving governance of tenure uh, globally. And that governance of, of tenure is um, natural resources, but largely um, for fish, fishes, um, forestry, and, of course, land. The, the context, where, where did this all sort of come about? Basically, um, 2007, 2008 saw the, um, the crisis in, uh, in 
uh, global food, both at not only in prices but also in um, the reliability of, of, um, of supply of food. This in turn spurred um, a new way of looking at land, uh, particularly by sovereign states and, and uh, private com companies often supported by sovereign states who tried to secure the, uh, the, the supply of uh, food commodities by going um, right downstream to, to acquiring land. This they were doing in many of the developing worlds, uh, taking advantage of uh, weak governance. Uh, and um, basically, uh, that has added to the problem. Th this sparked um, the need for the voluntary guidelines. But <clears throat> it wasn't only this. Basically, um, this has been coming for a long time. Uh, the, the problems associated with in increased competition for natural resources. Um, this competition comes from population growth, it comes from increasing urbanization, which gives us the, the dual problem of both taking agricultural land, but also increasing uh, the number of mouths to feed from an, an ever-decreasing um, uh, land base. Uh, changing diets and demand for energy. Somewhat ironically, um, we're, we're promoting biofuels, um, but that's at the expense of agricultural uses of land. So we're, we're creating a whole set of new problems here. Um, so within this last few years, we've, we're having these sort of in increasing uh, competition for um, natural resources, but at the same time, governments haven't really been in, in a position to react. Um, so we're finding that governments um, have got weak responses, um, and basically, um, what we when we start to look at weak governance, that we find we find that that is really behind a lot of our problems. And our problems are the sort of problems that we've been involved with uh, all our working lives, basically. These, I'm sure you'll, uh, these will be familiar to you. So we've got tenure rights that are not being recognized, particularly by vulnerable groups. Um, we have uh, inequitable access to, to natural resources. We've got discrimination, particularly with uh, gender and other vulnerable groups. We have uh, seen forced evictions. We've seen state state capture and capture by elites of natural resources, bribery and corruption. Um, we've also seen limited uh, capacity of governments to, uh, to react in terms of their administration institutions. They're often under-budgeted uh, under and uh, under-capacitated in terms of uh, professional expertise. Um, also, we have um, expensive and difficult procedures that often um, marginalize the, the poor. For example, if we're looking at um, registering a certificate of ownership and the registration costs are either um, expensive or the process is difficult, people don't understand it, people don't understand the benefits of it, and um, they can't afford it, so they're losing out. Um, We've got a lack of transparency and accountability of governments and uh, government agencies in, in terms of um, what they're doing. And uh, other problems we have are, are contradictory laws and policies. So because government, um, for example, land laws uh, may be historic, they may be coming out of the colonial era, um, as things progress they pass another law and then we find com conflicting laws. And then the um, the people don't understand uh, what their rights are, what they're supposed to be doing, and the judiciary don't know how to, uh, how to resolve these issues. So we've, we've got lots of problems. So this is, this is really where we're coming from. Now, uh, if that doesn't sound like too much to tackle, well, that is what the voluntary guidelines are trying to tackle. So we came from this kind of background, and we said, uh, so how do we do something about this? So <coughs> we, pr we produced... Um, a guideline or a set of guidelines ultimately and 
and eventually uh, they came out as this. Uh, we have this um, both in, uh, we, we have some copies out, outside, limited by what I could carry here. Others are on, online, it's web-based, I'll give you the, the link later. And if anybody wants a large number of them, we can actually send them uh, out and ship them out to you. Um, <clears throat> so that's the final sort of product of a long process, which I'll kind of briefly de describe to you. Uh, but first of all, I want to tell you a little bit about what they are. So first of all, they're voluntary. Um, so many people have said that's a weakness. With the voluntary, how do we enforce them? Well, that is our challenge, and that is true. Um, but on the other hand, because they're voluntary, we managed to get a very comprehensive um, document that covers a comprehensive range of problems and issues. Uh, and we managed to get a buy-in from uh, the stakeholders, particularly uh, country governments, national governments, who bought into this because they recognize that they still have their national laws, they still have their obligations under international treaties, and they are not undermined by these voluntary guidelines. So they, they could sign up to these knowing that, um, okay, we will use these if we want to use them if we see there's an advantage. So this is the sort of uh, context that we're talking about. Very, very briefly, I'll, I'll go through the technical aspects of, of this. Um, looking at the contents page here, um, we have a set of um, object, uh, objectives uh, and principles. So we start off, obviously, with the objective. What are we trying to do? What's the purpose of this? It's to improve, quite simply, to improve the governance of tenure of natural resources. To, so to improve how governments um, control and manage uh, their natural resources uh, and recognize the rights of those people who have a claim uh, to those natural resources. We have a set of general principles uh, and 10 other specific principles that are actually woven throughout the whole document. And these are the kind of principles that we all absolutely understand, the, the principles of, of uh, e equity, of uh, non-gender discrimination, of accountability and transparency. So these are, this weaves right the way through the, even the technical aspects of, uh, of, of this document. Um, the first point um, that in, to start the process of the technical aspect is actually talking about uh, the recognition, the legal recognition of, of rights. And this section recognizes that there are, there are um, other rights, not just the, the uh, legally recognized rights. A lot of countries are coming from plural uh, society, legal societies whereby they have at least two tenure systems. They have a statutory tenure system um, to which the law applies, and then they have a customary tenure system. And depending on what country you're talking about and about um, what, what particular institution is, uh, is involved in administering that land, um, you may have complete recognition of the country rights, uh, of the customary rights, or you may have, um, you may fall in this gray area where nobody really understands the relationship between uh, the national land law and, uh, and who owns the land and who has rights over the land and who, who has a say in the land. So we have uh, a, a phrase in here that we call legitimate rights. So. Um, if uh, customary tenure, for example, has uh, been in place for, for a large number of years, if people have been on the land and, and they, within their community, uh, recognize uh, the rights that they hold over those uh, natural resources, we would say that's a legitimate right. So we're not saying um, that it's an I illegal right, we're just saying that it's a legitimate right that's not yet recognized in law. And therefore, once you accept that as a principle, a whole series of other things start to fall into place. How are you going to protect those, 
right? Um, how are you going to safeguard them? How are you going to look after the, the, the owners of those rights? And that sort of uh, flows down then to the next chapter, really, which is about uh, the transfer of rights and how we transfer rights. It recognizes that uh, the market mechanism is, uh, is just one of the ways that transfers are, um, are made. And often um, markets, particularly in developing countries, are not efficient and they're not transparent. Deals are done, trans transferring uh, the use of land, and no details are available. The people involved are not consulted, and um, basically it's an opaque uh, smoke and mirrors kind of situation. So. Um, we recognize that there are markets out there. We need to Im improve those markets. We also uh, have a section on investments, recognizing, uh, first, first of all, that um, our development goals will never be, bet, never be met solely by uh, the kind of work that we do, in, that most of us do in, devel in development uh, work based on public investment. We need private investment, but there's been a lot of fallout from that private investment. One of the underlying catalysts for um, this process that we have embarked on was, um, was the land grabbing situation that we're all familiar with. And so what we have there is investments that are done in the wrong manner. So there are some positive investments that can be made, but also we don't necessarily need to be talking about the transfer of large tracts of land to individual commercial enterprises in order to meet our development goals. Development goals can be met in many different ways, um, and this uh, document is actually aimed at looking at, at inclusive type models that are uh, pro-poor type models, pro-small family models, um, so that whilst we encourage investment, it can be done on a partnership basis, perhaps cooperative basis, perhaps um, contract outsourcing, that sort of thing. Uh, part six is um, a, a an aspect here of uh, the guidelines that um, I'm particularly involved with because this is the administer, uh, administration of tenure. Um, this is something that I've seen firsthand in many parts of the world. Um, and you can have great policies, you can have great land laws, uh, but it all breaks down if you don't have sufficient technical, professional people uh, who have professional ethics, who are, who are well-trained, who have a budget to do what they're supposed to be doing, and therefore uh, not being corrupted by somebody coming in with uh, a brown paper envelope and, uh, and, and getting to the top of the list. So we really think that this is a very important part of it, and we've got a whole section on that. Um, probably not enough time to go through the details of it, but just to be aware that that's, that's there. Um, to show the breadth of the guidelines, um, we have included a section on the uh, response to climate change and emergencies, and we recognize that um, people are displaced through um, conflict, through natural disasters, um, and that causes a twofold effect. One is, where do, you, where do you put these people? That causes a whole set of new problems, and also what happens when they want to go back. If you haven't registered those, their rights, and they're coming from a a customary background or an informal background, uh, are they going to get back what they, what they left, particularly if those conflicts are uh, for 20 years or, or so. Uh, part seven is um, the promoting implementation and uh, monitoring of the guidelines. And I'd, I'd just like to say here, because they're voluntary, uh, CFS and FAO cannot monitor um, 
the governments, uh, whether they, whether they um, implement these or not, we can't actually force them, we can't police them. So what we mean by this section of uh, monitoring and evaluation is um, looking at our own efforts and our partners' efforts, um, probably through CSO involvement, uh, to see if we're making an impact, to see if by adopting um, the, the kind of principles and practices that the guidelines promote, if we're making a dif difference. So we probably need to start off by some kind of initial assessment and um, diagnostic, and then moving on into the future to keep track of it. Uh, brief word on the, on the language of the voluntary guidelines. Um, we're, we're using the word should virtually all the way through. So we can't say must, we can't, we're not obliging anybody to do anything, but we're just saying, look, states should recognize and respect all legitimate tenure, tenure right holders and their rights. That's the typical kind of language that we're using here. Uh, and these are principles and best practices that we're all familiar with. There's nothing really new here. The, the advantage here is that we have it in one document and we have it endorsed by governments. And this is my next point that I'm coming to. The process um, of, of getting the, these voluntary guidelines endorsed was a, is a unique process. Um, we'll probably hear, hear more uh, just now about this, but I, I've got a nice colorful map here that'll just show you a little bit about it. Um, it took two years of, of, um, of a regional uh, uh, discussion in 15 countries, over 1,000 people involved, 133 countries were uh, represented. But the main thing was we didn't just have government representatives. We also had government administrators, technical people involved. We had civil society involved. We had uh, associations of, of uh, smallhold farmers. We had the private sector, including private sector investors, including uh, private sector um, uh, financial equity, uh, hedge fund representatives, um, and we had academia involved. So what we did, it was a two-way process. We asked what were their concerns. We got the feedback. We tried to put it all together. Uh, we sent it out, the doc first document out as an email, um, uh, for email refer referencing and comments. Um, and then we had the intergovernmental inter negotiations. This took place in Rome with the Committee for World Food Security. Um, they had three special sessions on it, working through the night, uh, etc. Um, they managed to get uh, global um, agreement, global consensus on this. It's absolutely unique, um, not only in terms of um, that the governments were agreeing with each other, but because of all the parties that I've just um, talked about being involved in the process. And had they not been voluntary, that would have been impossible. So this is why we have them voluntary. But also, because those, those 100 countries, nearly 100, were involved in the direct um, endorsement of them, then we have a very strong platform for moving this forward. So this is not just a document that's been nicely printed and bound that's got to sit on somebody's shelf. This is actually governments have bought into, have bought into this. And we're, we're going to make sure um, by asking all of our partners and all of our people involved to actually uh, roll this out with us. So just coming to a sort of more or less conclusion here, but where we are placed now in FAO, um, because we were part of this process and because we are seen as being neutral, we've been asked to sort of lead on this now in terms of implementing it. 
Um, so we've got a number of ways in which we're doing this. One is creating awareness. Uh, we've got technical guides. We've got e-learning courses. Um, but uh, we're going to look at capacity developing. Mainly, though, we're going to provide initial support to countries. And at following that initial support, we expect um, that people will then go to their bilateral partners to get long-term funding for the kind of things that we're helping them to see uh, the direction that they go in. So we're not in competition with bilateral, multilateral agencies. Uh, we are here to facilitate the uh, adoption of the, of the guides uh, and to do that and to mainstream that through all the activities um, project activities uh, that, that um, are being undertaken by, by people such as yourselves. So um, in conclusion, I think really that it's all I can say is that um, we are now going to take this forward. It's a long-term goal. Uh, we've already had financial commitment from the EU, from the Swiss government, Belgium government, and the German government uh, to the tune of nearly $10 million. We're looking to do at least double or treble that um, if we're to lead this properly. But the main thing is that we've developed a tremendous uh, momentum with the process that we've had here. We've got a tremendous buy-in. We have partners that are actually uh, funding us and committing to us. And we now see that this at FAO is very happy to facilitate and lead on this, but we're asking every single um, organization from the top at the United Nations right down to grassroots le level, civil society, everybody in between, to mainstream these voluntary guidelines so that we can make this a reality. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's, it's really good to hear from the FAO, to hear this um, comprehensive vision, uh, and to imagine the amount of work that you've put into this process so that countries don't have to reinvent the wheel at every turn, but can look to a set of guidelines um, to, develop, to develop and tweak them for their own use. Um, the, the U.S. government was one of, the, one of the groups that was very involved in this. I know you, there were some twists and turns along the way, and the consultative process means that you had to tackle some of the challenges and um, some criticisms. I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, to talk a little bit about the process, um, talk a little bit about why the U.S. invests so heavily here, what, why a soft law type of format is, we think is useful in the U.S., how that kind of plays out. Just uh, sort of walk us through that a little bit. Be delighted to do that. Thanks, Joanna. Um, so uh, um, first of all, thank you to CSIS for organizing this, and, and thanks to Andrew for, for uh, that, that um, very uh, thorough introduction to the guidelines, which means I don't have to get into those, uh, those technical uh, details. Um, but I do want to just take a moment at the, at the top uh, to, to just uh, ask everyone to think about what an extraordinary achievement the, uh, the, the agreement on these voluntary guidelines was. If you look out in the international system um, and you look at uh, um, complex policy challenges like trade policy handled by the WTO or uh, uh, global issues handled in the UN General Assembly, and you pick a hard issue and you throw somewhere between 98 and 133 countries, national governments into the mix, and you shake it up. And ask yourself if you think you're going to see agreement anytime soon. I mean, I, I've been uh, um, paying attention to trade policy um, since I started in government, and we've been going through the Doha round for uh, a good decade now, where every so often they have a last gaff 
last gasp uh, ministerial where we're finally going to finish it and we're still not done. Um, now that's not what happened here. Here you took 98 to 133 national governments plus civil society representatives and private sector representatives and took a complex issue and threw them into a chamber and shook it up. And remarkably, in a space of, uh, of, about two, of, of less than two years, agreement was reached on these voluntary guidelines so that we could announce them and start to work on implementation. That doesn't happen very often, and so it's a real credit to those who were um, uh, deeply involved in the process, uh, people like Andrew and, and other experts from international organizations uh, and uh, um, from academia, the negotiators. And here I would uh, signal out, uh, single out my, my colleague from USAID, uh, Dr. Greg Myers, who's the senior advisor for land tenure at AID, who was the chair of the of the uh, working group that managed this process. And, uh, um, you know, he thought he was signing up for a one-year process. Uh, there was a, uh, we, we got 70% of the way there uh, as of last October. And the, the Committee on World F Food Security then agreed on an extension of the process to get it done because uh, in too many instances, when the going gets tough, the international community puts the problem up on a shelf and says, we, we're, we're just going to dig into our, our positions um, and the issues that prevented agreement last October um, might have never gotten resolved. But in this case, people actually continued to work towards agreement. And that's, as I say, a real credit to, to those who uh, um, uh, directly um, managed the negotiations and, and advised the negotiators and, and, uh, and brought this to a successful conclusion. So why does all this matter? Um, uh, as, as Andrew already mentioned, land tenure matters for a number of different reasons. It matters um, because of, uh, of uh, the, the relationship to international investment where we have had these, uh, um, uh, these instances that have led to, to uh, charges of land grabbing um, that have, uh, you know, that, that, uh, and concerns about the, the dispossessing of disempowered peoples from their land. Uh, um, and uh, when this happens in low-income, food-insecure countries, uh, um, it's a particularly painful thing to hear about. Uh, we also know that within countries, um, the lack of access to reliable uh, use rights for natural resources, land and other natural resources, um, leads to the kind of unpredictability that leads farmers, business operators, and so on, not to invest effectively. You know, so if you, if you don't have, if you're not sure that you own that land, why are you going to improve the soil? Why are you going to clear the, 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 the land better? Why are you going to otherwise invest in your, in your, in, in that resource? Um, and this then diminishes productivity and diminishes uh, food security in these, in these uh, countries. And so that's why in, in 2010, uh, the, the Committee on World Food Security began this extensive consultation and negotiation process to develop these voluntary guidelines to help ensure that local food security is not negatively impacted when investors, whether domestic or foreign, public or private, and enter into land ownership agreements or agreements relating to the other natural resources that Andrew's mentioned. And 
uh, to address the, this governance challenge, the, the Committee on World Food Security, or CFS, adopted a multidisciplinary approach, recognizing rural and urban linkages and considering a variety of natural resources and integrating safeguards for vulnerable people. And so, uh, as, as Andrew noted, there were 98 countries, there were uh, some uh, um, two and a half dozen uh, civil society organizations that participated in the CFS working group that Dr. Greg Myers uh, chaired, um, but there were consultations with a much broader set of actors and there was uh, significant input from, from private sector representatives and academia uh, and international organizations as well. The, the United States uh, um, devoted significant financial and, and human resources to this process um, because we knew it mattered. And uh, the results, as I said earlier, really speak to themselves. Um, it, it, at, the, at the time this started, it was early in the process of CFS reform. Um, there had been questions raised in, in uh, um, the, the not too distant past about the value of the CFS. Um, and uh, so this uh, uh, set of guidelines are the first major achievement of the reformed CFS and a real signal that the CFS um, uh, can make a difference in establishing norms, in setting a course for uh, uh, approaches to a, a very thorny issue that related to the governance of, of tenure of lands, forests, and fisheries. <laughs> and uh, um, by establishing international best practices for land governance, uh, this, uh, the, the voluntary guidelines will strengthen property rights of all land users. Uh, it will provide a, a framework that states can use when developing their own strategies, policies, and legislation, their programs and activities, while supporting transparent procedures for land allocation and promoting accessibility and accountability of land administration agencies. The overarching goals of the, of the voluntary guidelines are to achieve uh, food security for all by supporting efforts toward the eradication of hunger and poverty. They're intended to contribute to achieving sustainable livelihoods, social stability, housing security, rural development, environmental protection, and sustainable social and economic development. The voluntary guidelines acknowledge the importance of safeguards to protect the property rights of the vulnerable and marginalized, including indigenous people and women. And in many parts of the world, insufficient tenure rights for women contribute to a 20 to 30% gap in agricultural productivity for women farmers. And this is an example of why land rights or tenure rights for natural resources matter. Stronger safeguards uh, could reduce this gap, raise household incomes, and improve nutrition for vulnerable populations. Likewise, the voluntary guidelines can serve as an important framework to assist in promoting investment. Uh, in order to achieve food security for the 870 million people that I referred to earlier, the world is going to need more investment in agriculture. And investment in agriculture tends to revolve around investments in land or reliable land use rights. And so ensuring that there are clear rules of the road, transparent procedures, and, and uh, um, protections for land rights, um, the voluntary guidelines can help contribute in this important way to 
promoting more investment, setting the conditions for the promotion of more investment uh, in, in agriculture, particularly in food insecure countries. Around the world, the United States government is actively investing in improvements in land governance that strengthen the land and resource rights of local people and communities. For example, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the MCC, has committed over $250 million in funding for land governance projects in 11 partner countries. In the past three years, USAID has funded $200 million in land tenure programming in 30 countries around the world. The United States government is actively pursuing ways to assist countries that choose to implement the voluntary guidelines within their own property rights systems. Where implemented, the voluntary guidelines can promote investment and safeguard against illegal land transfers by increasing the clarity, transparency, and security of land tenure systems and the accountability of officials at all levels. In addition, the voluntary guidelines can assist countries in developing better policies and processes to protect formal and informal tenure rights to uh, land and other natural resources. Local people and investors will often benefit from improvements to land governance systems that increase transparency, accessibility, and accountability, and that protect rights and offer improved stability, predictability, and security. Specifically, the United States is endorsing pilot implementation of the, of the voluntary guidelines in key developing countries. We see implementation as a tool to help governments attract responsible investment, empower local populations with rights that expand opportunities to trade, and put in place strong governance systems to prevent land grabbing. One way that the United States is encouraging implementation of the voluntary guidelines is through the new Alliance for Food Security and Nutrition, which was launched in May 2012 by President Obama and the rest of the G8 leaders, along with African leaders. The new Alliance was launched as a shared commitment by the G8, by African partner countries, and by private sector partners to achieve sustained and inclusive uh, agricultural growth in Africa and to raise 50 million people out of poverty over the next 10 years. One of the objectives of the New Alliance Partnership is to uh, hold up the, the uh, initial set of African partner countries, which include Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Ghana, Mozambique, and Tanzania as models of how improving national policies can facilitate agricultural sector growth and investment. The parties to the new alliance have agreed to cooperation frameworks in which the governments have committed to include in their national development plans the implementation of relevant sections of the voluntary guidelines on land tenure as a means of promoting secure tenure rights and equitable access to natural resources. We know that secure land rights make a positive impact. In Ethiopia, a system of land certification is contributing to higher levels of land rental market participation, especially by female-headed households. This considerably enhances the opportunities to benefit from, from the land and increase household incomes. Now, we've, done a, 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 we've made a tremendous step forward with the voluntary guidelines, but we also know there's more work to be done. 
and there is uh, a new process that has just gotten underway, which I just want to touch on briefly before concluding. Um, when the, the participants in the Committee on World Food Security first grappled with this question of land tenure, it was in the context of a broader discussion of responsible agricultural investment. There was recognition that we couldn't solve all problems at once. So we took a piece of it, some would say the most important piece, and that was the land tenure piece, and worked to solve it first. Um, but now that we've done that, we have to get back to the rest of the challenge of addressing responsible agricultural investment. And so in the October annual meeting of the Committee on World Food Security, the CFS uh, unanimously approved a two-year process to address responsible agricultural investment, um, uh, which is aimed at developing principles uh, on responsible agricultural investment, which will seek to be consistent with and complementary to the voluntary guidelines on responsible governance of tenure. And, you know, despite significant increases in public sector funding for agriculture and food security, national agriculture and food security plans remain significantly underfunded. So there's an urgent need to attract responsible investment in agriculture and food security priorities identified in these national food security and agricultural development plans. Uh, the U.S. recognizes the need to expand private investment in agriculture in order to meet the hunger and poverty uh, goals under the Millennium Development Goals and to increase food security. There's widespread agreement that private sector investment is essential to boosting agricultural productivity, developing strong agricultural value chains, accessing new markets, transferring knowledge and skills to local people, and encouraging economic growth and job creation. So the United States supports the process laid out by the CFS and is committed to an outcome for responsible agricultural investment that supports uh, um, positive outcomes for all stakeholders and supports needed domestic and foreign private sector investment at all levels and at all stages across the value chain. And that's why while we celebrate the, the success of uh, the, the voluntary guidelines uh, uh, consultative process, and we uh, um, work to implement the voluntary guidelines, work to support the implementation of the voluntary guidelines. We also look forward to working closely with all the multiple stakeholders, national governments, international organizations, civil society organizations and representatives, private sector representatives and institutions um, to uh, um, follow the, 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 the example that we've had in the voluntary guidelines discussions that it is possible to reach agreement on thorny issues in ways that make a difference. And we look forward to um, uh, um, working with anyone in this room who's in, uh, who comes at the responsible agricultural investment issue from any of those perspectives or others um, that I may have forgotten to mention. Um, and we will be holding an outreach session uh, to go into more detail on the responsible agricultural investment issue. And let me just point out Amy Diggs in the back row so that if anyone does want more information on our outreach session, uh, Amy can get that to you. So thank you. Well, good. Well, thank you. And, and I think your comment about the fact this is, that this is the first real major deliverable of the renewed or revitalized CFS is, a, is an important one. I would say that probably most people in this room really believe very strongly in the technical ability that the FAO has in the knowledge and the data that it can provide. 
and really would like to see you know the the organization being you know deeply engaged in these areas and want to support that um, in any way possible. So with that, I'm not going to uh, you know sort of blather on with more questions. I want to open up to questions from the audience. What I'll do is maybe take two or three at a time. Please, uh, I think we have some microphones. State your name, your affiliation, and a brief question, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, woman in the back. Hi, uh, my name is Caramel. I'm a researcher at the um, George Washington University Institute for Corporate Responsibility. And my question for Mr. Hilton uh, is about the private sector consultation processes that you're in charge of. I'd like to hear a little bit more about who are the stakeholders involved and what are the feedbacks you got from those private sectors and how you um, eventually reached um, the consensus with the private sector. Thank you. Patricia Fagan, Georgetown University. Um, both speakers noted urbanization as a major consideration, which of course is important since more of the world's population today lives in urban areas than in rural areas. The um, brochure notes, and I, th and I think uh, Jonathan mentioned that the approach of the guidelines includes looking at the um, recognizing the linkages between urban and rural needs. I don't know, urban and rural, it's not clear what it recognizes, but urban and rural. And so I'd like you to address what that means. And in particular, uh, what, where, where do you see the land that surrounds urban areas that can be at one and the same time a major food producing area and, a, and also vulnerable to take over because urban land is no less uh, stable or easily defined than rural land. So that's what I wanted to address. Thank you, David Lambert, Iowa State. Um, congratulations, very promising. You, I believe, uh, with this progress, have highlighted another problem or perhaps another opportunity. And Jonathan may have been included in responsible ag investment, but uh, the recent FAO report says that nearly half the farmers in the world are women, and yet they get less than 5% of all technical assistance to agriculture. So in an example where a woman is entitled to the land and now she has the land, but she has no knowledge whatever about farming, is it envisioned that there might be another soft law coming to address this or is this implicitly included in the responsible ag investment issue? Yes, thank you. Um, to, to start with, um, the, the question on private sector um, involvement. So, um, we we recognised from a very very early stage that this was not going to be uh, another sort of closed shop kind of approach. If we're really going to make an impact here, we have to have the buy-in of everybody involved in, in it. So, um, it, we found that it was essential to have uh, the private sector in, invited. So, so they came, well, they were invited and came to. Um, the various regional meetings. Uh, and then we found uh, that there weren't that many in the regional meetings and that they uh, perhaps were uh, just there to observe more than really have a say. I think they were a little bit intimidated. You get you get in a, a room of uh, 100 people in our kind of business and uh, the private investors tend to sit at the back a little bit quiet and 
kind of uh, just listen. So we ha held two separate private in investment um, um, uh, discussions, consulta consultations, uh, where we really encouraged them to open up. And we got some really um, useful insights into what makes them tick and, and how they operate. Um, and this is essential uh, in if, if we're to make progress and if, if we are, as Jonathan had mentioned and I had earlier at the beginning, our organizations absolutely recognize the need for private investment if we're to achieve our development goals. Otherwise, uh, we're not in the development game. We're in, what, freezing the, the existing uh, status quo. Um, so we really need to work with them. Um, and we have really recognized uh, that and we need to work out how we can get this win-win situation that everybody keeps talking about. Very elusive, very difficult. What do we mean by investment? What do we mean by the private sector? The private sector is, has many different uh, forms. So um, we're working with them closely. We are even working with them now about implementation. Um, so we've got a working group um, of private sector individuals, and this includes financial institutions as well as uh, growers of, of, ag of uh, agricultural products. Um, and we want to see how they think it can work, what they need out, out of this. Um, on the urban um, issue, the peri-urban area, a whole set of real problems there. Um, in fact, the guidelines do briefly um, link to full urban uh, areas. We, we recognize that there are still problems associated with tenure and governance of informal settlements um, and, and illegal settlements within the urban area itself. Uh, and then this, this whole set of new pro problems as, as cities expand. I've done quite a bit of work in China, and uh, there, China often falls off the radar in our, in our work. I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, they have, the, first of all, the biggest agricultural population uh, of any nation. Uh, secondly, the biggest problems. And thirdly, uh, they think nothing of forced evictions over there. Uh, they even have the, the way that their local governments are financed is through uh, buying at agricultural value, re rezoning and selling at commercial value, and nothing stops in the way of that. And um, so for a local government to, to uh, continue its finances, its budget, um, it actually has to buy agricultural la land. So the, this expansion there is at such a great percentage that it, that, um, it, it is significant. And in fact, they, they now have a, a limit or a moratorium on this, and they, don't, they literally don't know what to do about it because their agricultural land is decreasing at such a rate. Uh, so we do have a whole set of problems uh, to deal with, but um, when it gets down to specific problems, I mean, all I can say is that the, the principles um, and processes within the voluntary guidelines do, do cover this, um, but then we need a whole sort of series of, of other documents, of other uh, processes that can push forward specific issues like this. Um, I think on uh, the other problem, probably more appropriately to speak on it. Great, thanks. Um, right, and so uh, um, on the private sector consultation piece, the, w the one thing I would add is that the within the CFS system, the private sector role has become better organized and, and, and more uh, um, uh, structured, so that there is now a private sector mechanism uh, that complements the civil society mechanism. Um, there's an organizing uh, organization that can help 
um, uh, private sector participants have uh, a more effective voice in the process. Um, civil society worked through that, that is the, the wide range of civil society institutions worked through that process of developing a mechanism um, prior uh, to the, 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 um, the, the, the negotiation of the, the, the voluntary guidelines. So uh, uh, with the new uh, implementation efforts of the voluntary guidelines and the uh, consultative process surrounding responsible agricultural investment writ large, I expect we'll see um, a more uh, a, a clearer voice from the private sector um, uh, to, to complement the, the um, input that uh, already exists from, from civil society and certainly governments. Um, on on uh, urban rural, uh, um, I think Andrew's uh, um, already covered it uh, pretty well. The one uh, thing I would just add, having personally spent seven years in, in China, um, is that uh, um, China is a case where, where um, they, the, the government and the society feels the pressure of inadequate uh, arable land um, for their needs. Uh, and, and so they see the, the, the supply of arable land as, as essentially fixed and dwindling with urbanization. In many of the uh, food insecure countries uh, in, the, in the world, um, uh, the, 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 um, the availability of land is not the problem. There is lots of unutilized land. Um, it's uh, either uh, environmental regimes to uh, um, make use of that land, uh, that available land, effectively, or more likely, um, the, the kind of uh, land tenure systems uh, that, that enable people to actually obtain use rights to that land so that they can, they can uh, take advantage of it. Um, and again, uh, so, so that, that means that uh, you know, if, if peri-urban areas turn into urban areas, um, there, there should be plenty more land just down the road a piece if there is a road. Um, on uh, um, the uh, question uh, that David Lambert raised about uh, um, women, um, uh, so uh, the, the, the challenge of uh, women's access to land is one that certainly the, the U.S. government uh, um, play, pays close attention to as part of our um, broader recognition of the importance of, it, uh, of addressing gender issues in development, including in agricultural development. Um, uh, um, you know, signs of this, uh, um, it is a major theme of our Feed the Future initiative. Uh, Secretary Clinton uh, last calendar year um, uh, hosted an event at the, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly devoted to the topic of women in agricultural development. Um, where, by the way, uh, your, your, your current boss, the, the now Director General of, uh, of the Food and Agriculture Organization, was a very important participant, and, and uh, he spoke directly to this, this issue uh, there. Um, and um, the very first event he did after being elected, not yet taking off, taking office, but uh, uh, being elected to the FAODD position was to go to another event that the U.S. organized um, in Rome, on women in agricultural development. So he committed there to make um, women in agriculture and gender issues more broadly a, a key priority for the FAO going forward. So um, those of us working in this field get the point you're, you're making and, and we're working to address it. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, let's start in the very back. And then we're going to take, we're going to go by quadrant. So the very back and then the middle and then, then woman with your hand up and then we'll start over. And let's, let's make these brief questions. 
Uh, Daniel Fullerton with the Public International Law and Policy Group. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how the voluntary guidelines deal with capacity building at more localized and regional government levels, especially in dealing with localized minority groups or underrepresented persons. My name is Nathan Weininger. Um, I'm curious about how the guidelines deal with conflicts within different definitions of legitimacy. So customary versus equity, how do you negotiate um, when those different forms come into conflict? Uh, Anne Vaughn from Mercy Corps. We have a, a variety of different uh, land tenure and conflict resolution dispute programs in Latin America that have been successful and started because we were trying to do investment in agriculture, specifically in Guatemala, dealing with indigenous groups. It's spread to Colombia now and to Bolivia. But we're working closely with subnational governments, municipalities, and doing informal conflict resolution was interested to on that question with um, um, how to work with subnational governments and how the voluntary guidelines help with that. Um, and then secondly, Jonathan, appreciate all the work you've done on sort of food diplomacy writ large um, from the sort of high level and then how on the low level civil society is start engaging and pushing back on their own governments to be delivering on um, some of the things that we're talking about today. Thanks very much. Yes, the first question on capacity building um, for local minority groups and how we're going to achieve that. I mean, this now is our challenge of how do we turn um, the set of uh, policies and principles in, into concrete actions. Um, what, we, what we recognize within this is that we need to capacity build at all levels. Um, we need to capacitate governments. Um, we need to capacitate people on the ground. Um, really, even at the lowest levels, to, to recognize um, that they have rights. A lot of people... When, when the government, uh, local government or government institutions come in and say, um, this is state land, as you know, uh, and we are having a project here, and um, that's a, equivalent to a forced eviction, they don't really realize that they have rights. So we need to capacity build those people. Now, FAO cannot reach down to that level, uh, to the grassroots level of every single country. Um, so we're looking to partner with, um, with the civil society, their best place to do this. Um, and whether those are formal partnerships or whether it's just um, people seeing the guidelines, agreeing with what they say, and going out and educating small uh, groups of people, then um, that's, the way, that's the best way to do it. Um, on uh, the other, the, the conflicts kind of situation, um, this is always going to be a, a big problem. We do have a section there on uh, conflict resolution. We, we uh, see that this is absolutely um, crucial. Um, we see as well that if you do things properly, we can avoid the conflict in the first place. That's the best way to settle it. Um, so let's do things right in the, in the first place. Um, there are lots of good um, technical books on this and guides and so on. Um, all of it falls within our um umbrella. So really, we're, we're advocating and promoting, um, basically through governments, taking the right set of actions that's likely to um, involve uh, certifying or certification schemes or regi registration schemes so that we can recognize um, the claims to, to uh, rights for, for natural resources. And if those, um, if in, in setting them out and registering them and identifying them that we see that there are conflicting claims, well, let's address it right at that early stage before it actually becomes a real conflict. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, just note that the, the, the U.S. is involved in, in uh, on capacity building at the local levels. The U.S 
has been involved in capacity building for civil society um, at multiple levels in developing countries for a long time. Um, uh, this is an issue that uh, um, uh, um, we really um, uh, see as very important, including in the realm of food security. Um, again, uh, uh, referring back to my boss, uh, Secretary Clinton, um, she hosted an event, actually co-hosted an event uh, at this year's UN General Assembly sessions uh, um, with the uh, president of Malawi, uh, Joyce Banda, um, where, uh, first of all, uh, from the U.S. perspective, we, we explained, well, Secretary Clinton and, and USAID Administrator Dr. Rajiv Shah explained how we see civil society as a key partner in achieving our development goals in the realm of food security and elsewhere. Um, but then uh, there was perhaps a, 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 um, a, a case study example of that presented by uh, Joyce Banda, the, the president of Malawi, who shared her own personal experience of uh, um, leaving a, an abusive marriage and essentially, as she put it, walking into the USAID mission in Malawi um, and asking for support in developing a women's empowerment civil society organization. And it took her a couple of tries. As she, as she described the history, but uh, she eventually got the support from USAID, founded the first of two women's empowerment organizations in Malawi, and she then rose into, uh, into political positions, ultimately becoming vice president and, and, uh, and then more recently president of the country. So um, uh, we, we, we uh, again, appreciate and, 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 and uh, value the, the role of civil society empowerment in, in societies, um, and, and uh, that'll be important, certainly, in um, addressing the land tenure issues that the voluntary guidelines uh, um, relate to. Um, and, and I think that sort of covers the, the, uh, um, the, the question from Mercy Corps as well, so maybe I'll just leave it there. And uh, We'll take some other yeah. questions. Um, okay, so we're going to come next door to the woman who just asked a question, and then the front row, and then, okay, the waving hand in the back. I can only see the hand again. Oh, it's David's group, of course. Okay. All right, go ahead. Hi. David Jesse from USAID. Question for Andrew. Building the systems that you've described is a very expensive proposition. Is there any way to get some private investment money in building those systems? Uh, Jacques Bahati with the Africa Faith and Justice Network. Um, I'd like to have your comments on uh, land grab. Um, when you spoke about it, it was kind of um, not as really as an issue, but from the Afri African per perspective, this is a threat, a serious threat. So uh, what can you tell us and how we can go about those already who have acquired land uh, in Africa? Thank you. Uh, David through CSIS Africa and uh, George Washington University. Um, I must confess I've been made uh, a little nervous by the answer to one of the questions in the previous round. Um, if you actually certify land ownership, you actually privilege. And I think in many parts of Africa where I work, that can be a major problem. Uh, I've done some consulting for the World Bank in northern Ghana, and in northern Ghana, I would say you could find probably six or seven levels of individuals, each with perfectly legitimate rights to cultivate bits of the land, the same land. 
uh, what do you do and how, how do you resolve uh, those kind of layered systems which you find so widely throughout uh, many parts of Africa? First of all, um, the question about um, uh, private financing of, um, of the process. Great idea. Thank you. I'll take that back and, um, and um, we'll look into that. Um, obviously, as I said, we are talking to the private sector. Um, whether or not we can get them to help us fund um, our implementation program, um, why not? Let's, so let's look into that. Um, Next point was uh, yes on the on uh, the land grabs. I mean, uh, this is a big issue. It was one of the I, I, it's the hottest topic uh, going really. I mean, when we when um, we're talking about voluntary guidelines and we purposely have kept them broad because we think they apply to uh, fisheries and forests, even to to water, although it's not specifically mentioned, um, and all sorts of uh, other things. We've we've tried to be as sort of comprehensive as possible, but. Every time we're talking um, about projects, every time we're talking um, to, to in individuals who are concerned about things, it's nearly always about land grabbing, and it's nearly al always about African uh, land grabbing. A lot of us have got experience of it directly. Um, I certainly have in, in working in the field. Um, so these, are, these guidelines are modelled around that, um, about, about land grabbing. Uh, they do give... I think very clear uh, directions to all of the players involved um, in this, so all of the stakeholders. We also are preparing uh, technical implementation guides uh, on, in, in the various sort of themes that, that run through the, the uh, voluntary guidelines. One is on agricultural investment. Um, we have a, uh, specifically addressed this kind of issue. Um, and the roles that each of the stakeholders play and the responsibilities of each of the stakeholders. Uh, so I think the guidelines are pretty clear on that. Um, for example, um, they also put um, a responsibility on um, sovereign countries that the, uh, who are home to the investments or who are supporting um, foreign direct investment of their own nationals. And we're saying, look, you must not, uh, I'm not saying must, because we can only use the word should, but... Um, they should recognise that they have a, an, a, a responsibility. You know, this is a moral responsibility. Don't take advantage of uh, weak governance. Don't take advantage of the fact that the land is cheap. It's not cheap if you're putting people, if you're throwing people off and ruining their livelihoods. Um, so I, I think they're well addressed in both the guidelines and the technical guide, which will be published in a few months' time. Yeah, thanks. Well, again, I think Andrew's covered a, a lot of it. Uh, um, the uh, on the question of private funding for for the kinds of uh, certification and other um, administration systems, um, that that is a, a, an interesting question about whether the uh, private sector could be a source of funding. I think the the uh, most important thing to note is um, the responsibility of national governments, including at the subnational level. Um, to, to fund these systems themselves, and that's a responsibility that these governments are, are uh, um, increasingly recognizing. Um, uh, when we look, for example, at some of the countries involved in the new alliance, um, the, uh, the, the governments involved are taking on specific responsibilities to establish certain kinds of uh, land tenure administration systems by 
specific dates. They are putting national budgets and subnational budgets uh, when, when appropriate to use uh, um, to, to, uh, to, to make this happen. Um, uh, so it will take investment from a variety of, uh, of, of channels to, to make this really work. Um, and then on uh, the, the question from the back, uh, um, uh, from uh, your CSIS colleague, uh, um, about uh, the multiple claimants on, on any given piece of land, um, you know, uh, I guess one thing that it harkens back to is the, the uh, um, disputes that went on in the American West uh, um, between ranchers and, 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 and farmers, um, those who wanted uh, throughways for, 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 for livestock and, and those who wanted fences uh, to keep them out. Um, uh, the same sorts of issues play out in, in various contexts, not only in Africa but elsewhere. Um, uh, and so uh, the challenge is going to be in each context working out a, a, a viable solution, one that respects the needs of multiple users of, of these natural resources. Great. Well, I think we have time for one more round of questions. And I'm going to go over to this side, gentleman in the front and woman in the front, and then we'll let you all do private questions afterwards if you'd like. Doug Batson, a geographer with the U.S. Department of Defense. And my question concerns the land administration domain model. For the voluntary guidelines to be effective, the rights, restrictions, and responsibilities regarding tenure, formal or informal, need to be recorded somewhere. And the LADM I just mentioned has been in development for 10 years. Last week, it was voted in as the first ISO standard for land administration, so that overlapping claims, multiple claims, informal claims to land that are not statutory with deeds and titles and even parcel base can now be recorded side by side with statutory tenures. Are the authors aware of the potential of the land administration domain model to make the voluntary guidelines realized? Thank you. Uh, I'm Jeannie Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. And my question is a little specific. This is a volunteer guideline. So you also stress good governance. It's important that the government's binding to it. So among the 98 countries, uh, 133 countries that in your work group was Vietnam, one of them. And then we do actually have a lot of problems with land grabbings and food and many problems even creating instability in the society right now. And it's been going on for years. So if Vietnam has not been engaged, is there a way that we can work with you to get them engaged? The government, I mean. Thank you. OK, so I'm, I'm going to uh, um, answer with uh, um, uh, deference to, to Andrew. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, because I, I, I don't know the answer to the question of whether Vietnam was one of the 98. Um, uh, perhaps Andrew does. And on the uh, question of the, uh, the, the um, uh, land administration domain model, uh, given that Andrew has just said that uh, his specialty is administration uh, issues, I'm going to defer to him. Oh, we should have started with it. <laughs> 
There wasn't really much point in going first, was there? <laughs> Not on these questions, thank you. Okay. Right. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for, um, for, for that particular point, because um, this is the sort of um, model that we, we do want to promote, uh, and particularly on your, your point about sort of uh, um, easy and useful technology. Um, we do believe that some kind of certification, you know, uh, no matter what kind it is, but just getting that down in writing somewhere, recorded, is absolutely important. Now, I, I have a long history in uh, land administration, but when I was working in Zambia 20 years ago, we still had an old compatriot of, of, of my country, anyway, I um, wasn't directly working with him, but in the land survey office, and he was um, about to retire. Now, there was no way that he would look at anything other than measuring down to the absolute fraction uh, of, of accuracy. Now, he, ne he didn't have enough staff, he had um, a, a waiting list of land to be surveyed as long as your arm, and nothing would convince him that he, he could uh, do it unless he had qualified land surveyors with all the, with the, the old-fashioned technology that they had in those days. Now, we're doing a quantum leap right now we, with, the, with the technology that we have, with handheld technology, we can train, and I've been in, uh, involved in a, in a, a project uh, that I ran in Ethiopia just last year, where we bought, I think, 50 GPS, handheld GPSs and gave them away to all the decentralized offices, and we said, go out and do it. If, you're, if you are uh, talking about um, uh, registering at area, particularly community areas, uh, where the deg degree of accuracy, it doesn't matter if you're five meters out, it really doesn't matter, and in fact, um, even if they're quite small um, areas, because we just want to get that recorded, um, and that there, there is nobody conflicting uh, with with that. If there are, then let's actually uh, okay. We've got two conflicting records here. Let's try and resolve that. Um, as I said earlier, before it gets to um, a real conflict stage, uh, but we do welcome uh, that reference to the model, and I'll try and um, get remember to get that included in our. Um, in our um, uh, technical guide on agricultural investment under the relevant section on that. So perhaps we can exchange. Ab absolutely, well, we re welcome it. We're, we're happy to put the link in on that one. So thank you. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah this, and the second point I think was about the, the 98 countries and, and uh, Vietnam. And um, we had, I cannot remember whether we had actually uh, representation at the endorsement uh, from Vietnam. I think we did at the region, certainly at the regional um, consultation. And incidentally, the participation in the endorsement is, it's not like, well, okay, those 98 endorsed it and we're still waiting for the other 120 to, to join on board. I mean, really, what it was was that, that was 98 countries that were part of the CFS procedure and actively were involved. Lots of others um, knew about it and are kind of involved in it. And so it, it's not like a tally uh, like that, but we are able to say this is globally accepted by the member countries of the United Nations. Uh, but I can say that uh, we had a specific request from Vietnam uh, very recently um, to um, hold a dissemination workshop with them, and we did that uh, last month. We had somebody uh, out there giving a presentation on it, and uh, as a result of that, we have had a request from them uh, to help them, um, and this is basically where we see the next uh, stage going, is responding to these individual country requests for assistance.
Only to say that, uh, um, to, to just reinforce what I said before, um, you know, we've heard a number of questions that uh, suggest both the complexity of the problem, uh, the, the multiple levels of uh, political and legal issues and technical uh, challenges, um, uh, and uh, we're going to need help from uh, stakeholders from all those various perspectives as we move forward on implementation. And we're also going to need active engagement in the uh, consultative process on responsible agricultural investment, RI, uh, as it's known, um, going forward. So we look forward to working with, with all and sundry because it, it really does matter to achieving sustainable global food security. Well, that, it's exciting to think about a quantum leap and, and to think about just starting to record places where people live and having having a measure of agreement that this is where you live, this is the land you occupy, and having technology to do that that's inexpensive, that's user-friendly, is, um, is I think a good point to end our conversation today. Um, Andrew, thank you for your many years of work in this area and for what I'm sure has been a real challenging but eye-opening experience. Uh, thanks for sharing your time with us today. Jonathan, thank you uh, and the State Department for all of your many efforts, and AID. Uh, AID, I know, has been very involved all of your efforts in this area. Thank you for joining us. I think uh, please join me in thanking uh, our speakers.